I want to study with you a little while this morning about when sin broke the world. I believe this is a very significant topic to understand and that coming to terms with the fact that sin broke the world can really help equip us to deal with difficulties that life brings our way and difficulties that we see others experience in life. Very often we will hear unbelievers protest about all the bad things that happen in the world. And if there is a God who loves us, why does he let all these terrible things happen? And people ask that question in the vein of questioning the existence of God. And I'd like to offer for your consideration an illustration this morning to help lay before our minds what that protest really means. Imagine, if you would, that we go to look at this house. And this house was finally made. There was a builder who was involved in the designing and the construction of this house. And on a superficial level, that house looks grand. And it looks like that it might be a, a nice place to live. But as you spend more time there and inspect, you begin to observe some problems. And somebody walks over to one of the walls and says, Look here, let me show you something. And they just push lightly against the woodwork and it just caves in and crumbles. And they say, See, termites have gotten into this house and they've just eat it up from the inside out. And as you continue to look, you see more places where woodwork that would be ornate is all of a sudden corrupted. And walls that would be steady are all of a sudden feeble. Now in that scenario, imagine somebody walking in and saying, See, I told you this house didn't have a builder. There's no way somebody built this house because termites have come and destroyed it. Therefore, what happened was there was an explosion in a forest and it threw all this wood together in the shape of this house. Because if this house had a competent builder, there's no way termites would come in. That is the atheist's lead argument against the existence of God. And it's just as ridiculous as that illustration makes it sound. Every bit is ridiculous. I want to study with you today about the king of those termites. And now he's come in and destroyed what a good builder designed and made at the touch of his own voice. I want to talk about how sin broke the world. Proverbs 11 and 19 says, As righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. This proverb introduces us to an axiom of life, a basic law of life. And that law is righteousness tends to make things good and sin tends to destroy things. And the reason there are all these problems in the world that people blame God for, the reason those problems are there is not because of God, it's because of sin. Because righteousness tends towards life. And you can readily observe that. When people get together and try to do good things 
for good reasons, to help people in good ways, then good things result from that. Joy comes from that, from the people that are on the receiving end and the people that are on the giving end. And we see good effects and hearts are made happy. But when people band together to do evil, it brings misery. It brings pain. It brings suffering. That's very easy to observe in life. And that's what this passage teaches us. And understanding that principle helps us understand what happened to the good world that God made. Sin broke it. I want you to know when people say, well, why didn't God make a world that didn't have all these problems? They don't understand in asking that question that that's precisely what God did. I saw a little blurb where someone protested, well, the difference, this was an unbeliever, the difference between me and your God is if I could stop all these assaults against children, I would. And that statement fails in its assumption that God's the reason for all those kinds of things. And He's not. Such injustices and tragedies and travesties exist in the world on account of sin and sin's destructive effect. When God made the world, He made a world that was perfect and free of such trials and such tragedies. Genesis 1 and 31 after a summarization of his creative work, the Bible says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. This says everything that God had made was not just good, it was very good. You think about what you would have to fashion to make something that was very good. I know a brother in the church in another place that is, he's not just a carpenter, he's a craftsman. He specializes in building cabinetry. He's very gifted. He's by nature very tedious and meticulous in his work. And there have been in different instances where I've seen his handiwork and I've looked at that and said, man, that's just really good. And he said, no, it's not. <laughs> and with his critical and well-trained eye, he begin to verbally inspect his handiwork and as good as it looked to me he saw the flaws that's part of what you respect about the guy and that's part of what makes him the craftsman that he is God's work can't have such a report that could not be said about God's perfect world that he made at the beginning of time the earth itself was perfect. Look at the review in Genesis 2, verse 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This tells us, the greatness with which God made the earth and talks about the garden that He planted. If you are a gardener or you enjoy gardening of some type or another, you can respect the idea of what kind of garden would God plant. I plant a garden nearly every year. I enjoy going out there and working. There are some years it looks terrible. And there are some years that it looks pretty decent. There are some years that part of it will look great and part of it will look awful. And those of you who are in the farming industry or the crop 
growing industry, you understand uh, that feeling. And those of you who like to grow vegetables or you have a flower garden, you understand that. So I can take my wife out there and show her the vegetables that I've planted that she likes and confess to her how ugly it is that they're failing and she won't have any corn at the end of the season. She likes that. And I can show her the disease that came upon the tomatoes and I don't know when, where, how, or why, but I'm sorry you won't have the fresh tomatoes I told you I was going to try to grow. And there are other years I can go pick and I can bring the prize to the door and say, here you are, dear, and feel like I've given her something that she'll really enjoy. And I can feel good about that garden. But at the best times, there's always something growing there that we can't eat. And there's always something little that's nibbling on what we want to eat. There's always a problem. But I want you to ask yourself, what kind of garden would God plant? I'm going to tell you it looked good from stem to stern and it looked good every day in the beginning. It was perfect. It was at the creation that God made angels. Psalms 148 celebrates the creation of angels as well as other things. Verse 2 and verse 5. Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. He's listing off different things that God had created. Verse 5, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Some people wonder about the origin of angels. This passage answers that question for us. Angels are created beings that God created. Well, when did he create them? You can read and review about the creation in Exodus chapter 20, where God said in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth and all that in them is. Everything that God created, everything that was created both in the heavens and in the earth, God created. Well, that tells us he created angels sometime in that creation week. may not tell us what day, but we know that's when he did it. Sometime in that span of time. And they were perfect. And the earth was perfect. Until one of those angels rebelled. The book of Ezekiel chapter 28 talks about the king of Tyre and uses the king of Tyre as a symbol of Satan. There are things that he says there about the sinfulness of that king and the eventual downfall of the nation that he led that, that fit that king. But inasmuch as he's using him as a symbol of Satan or sort of a type of Satan, there are things that are said in Ezekiel 28 that really don't fit the king of Tyre because in the current going underneath that passage, it's really about Satan and his rebellion against God. Let's read about that in Ezekiel 28, beginning at verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, and sapphire, and turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I establish you, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. 
Now, for all the things in the, in the greater context here of Ezekiel 28, you could read that fit the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre was never in Eden. He lived over on the coast, and he couldn't go back because you'll remember when God drove man from the garden, he set the way so that man couldn't come back. He talks about this individual being an anointed cherub. That's an angelic being. The king of Tyre was not an angel. He was a human. So there's language here in this passage that swells beyond what the king of Tyre was or did. And that in the Bible is something that some call typology, where you have one character that's a type or a symbol of another character. And in such passages, the language describing that individual will swell beyond anything that individual did or was and comes to fit the one that's represented in the story. And that's what's happening here. And in showing us that, he shows us what happened with Satan. God created Satan because Satan was an angel, but he wasn't Satan when God created him. He was a good angel. This passage said he was perfect in his ways from the moment he was created until... He sinned. God made angels with the capacity to choose. And this one that came to be known as Satan chose to rebel against God. The specific nature of his rebellion might be a difficult subject, and there might be a lot of questions about that we couldn't answer. But we know enough now to know when the kernel of sin entered the realm of God's creation. And that is when this Satan made the choice to turn against God and rebel. And he wasn't content to stand alone in that. He wanted to seek others to join him in that. In John 8... Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the, when? From the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Who is the father of lies? Who is the father of sin? Who is the father of rebelling against God? It's Satan. And Jesus identified some people in his audience as people who made the decision to follow Satan, to be children of Satan instead of following God. They may not have been aware of that, and the fact that that was the choice they had made, but nonetheless, that was the choice they had made. So Satan corrupted God's beautiful and perfect creation by rebelling against God and by taking others and bringing them with him. Job 4 in verse 18, one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, mentions this in a very faint, brief way. He said, if he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, and Lyphaz is going on to reason that therefore he's going to hold man responsible for what he does. It was a matter of historical record in the mind of the patriarch Eliphaz that there were angels that God found guilty of sinful conduct. And because of Ezekiel 28, we know who the lead guy was in that. 
2 Peter 2 verse 4 makes light inference of this when it says, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them to chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, he goes on from there to, re- to reason that therefore God will judge sin today. He's making the same argument that Eliphaz made in the book of Job. That God holds his creatures, his creation, accountable for when they choose to turn against him. And that starts with Satan choosing to rebel against God and the subsequent corruption of mankind. Genesis 3 and verse 6 records for us how Adam and Eve were deceived into falling into this pattern of rebellion. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. So with this activity here in Genesis chapter 3, culminating in verse 6, Satan persuaded Eve and also Adam to partake of the forbidden fruit. He persuaded them to turn against God, to rebel against God, to sin. And in that moment, a perfect world became broken. And every tragedy, every tear, every injustice, every outrage, every famine, every flood, every disease, every crime, Every natural disaster, every fire, everything came on the heels of that event. God did not make a world where babies get sick and die. He made a world where things like that do not happen. But one of his creatures chose to rebel and persuaded others to follow. And that broke what God had made. Let's look at the effect. Romans 8 and 22, the effect of sin coming into God's creation. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Now here he uses the difficulty of childbearing and the the labor pains of childbearing to illustrate what the world is going through. And it's interesting, the language here doesn't just limit this to the, the human experience. It's not just us that's suffering. It's the whole creation that's suffering. When there's a fire that burns a forest, that may burn someone's house down, but it kills those trees too. When there's a flood that washes the land and destroys people's lives and destroys their homes, that flood also kills a lot of animals. It's the whole creation that's groaning right now under the burden and weight of the fact that sin broke the world. And God didn't cause it. And people look at God and say, how could he do that? Therefore, I'm not going to follow him. I'm going to go do my own thing. And in that choice, they choose to follow the one that did cause all these things. Well, there's termites in this house. There can't be a builder. I think I'll serve the king of the termites in protest of the damage that they've done. See how irrational and illogical that is? 
This brought death into the world. Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis 3 and 19 says, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return into the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. God explained to Adam here, Because you guys have done this, people will die. And what's the precursor to death? Sickness. The times that you and I get sick and then we get well, and then we get sick again and we get well, and whatever headaches that causes in our life, all of that is there as a prelude to the fact that we're all dying. And the fact that we're all dying is not God's doing. It's Satan's because sin broke the world. It also brought sinfulness. Romans 5 and 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Adam and Eve joining, albeit inadvertently, joining the rebellion against God, them choosing to sin, made all of their offspring prone to sin. And that made sin universal amongst mankind. Sometimes my wife and I will sit and talk about something that she encounters in her work at school, some terrible tragedy that's happened to some child or in some family. We may talk about that over the supper table, and, and sometimes I'll just shudder, physically shudder, and say, how can people do that to their children? How can people get to the point where they're so calloused to sin and other people's needs and, and be cruel and so on like that. You understand that. If you observe any news at all that's going on today, I don't particularly recommend that. But if you do, you know what I'm talking about. We just can't imagine how people could become so corrupt. And sin is that corrupting force. When we choose to follow God and we resist that, it minimizes the destructiveness that sin would bring upon us and our character. But those who live freely, in their conscience at least, not resisting sin, become slaves to it. And it corrupts them more and more and more until humans become capable of doing things that you and I can't understand or imagine. And sin has become universal. So the next time someone says, you see all that bad stuff that's happening over there that those people are doing, how can God allow that? <laughs> how can God make it so that that's happening? He didn't. Satan is the cause of that by corrupting man's heart and breaking us and making us prone to sin. Ephesians 2 talks about it this way in a manner that is somewhat alarming talking about somebody who's outside of Christ, man in his so-called natural state. He said in Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. The Ephesian society was a pagan society, and it was particularly wicked. And saints there at Ephesus had been converted out of religions like that or out of ways of life like that, that that allowed a great deal of evil to flourish among them and encouraged it. 
And you might argue that not every race or every group of, of man is as evil as those early Ephesians were, but there's some evil in all of us. And he says it's in our nature. By nature, those people were children of wrath, and it wasn't just them, it was others. Others that you might look at and say, well, they weren't that bad, but they were still bad. And by turning against God, whether purposefully or not, just like Adam and Eve, they become followers of Satan. And these self-styled experts that argue against God's existence because of the evil that Satan has caused in doing those things are honoring the one that's caused the problems they protest and defaming the God who proposes to fix it some sweet day. Let's keep studying that. The effects of sin causes injustice. Genesis 3, 17 through 19, then, Adam, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of life, which I command you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Way to go, Adam, you just messed up a perfect garden. And now it's got things growing in it that don't belong, and they're corrupting the ability of what you do need to produce. And there's bugs in there eating, and there's microorganisms that are getting after it, and it's a problem. It's an agricultural community, a lot of you involved in agriculture. All of you here that are involved in agriculture, I wonder how much you spent this last crop year on antifungal spray, pesticides, herbicides, or the labor to physically remove those things and the fuel to run the vehicles to disperse those things and the cost of the vehicles to disperse those things. I can't imagine the staggering figure that must be. That's all because of sin. Now here's the thing. Those thorns and those thistles are obvious when you're thinking about the guy that's raising a crop or a guy that's there in the Garden of Eden that has to leave the garden and plant his own garden. But for that person with an office job, he's got thorns and thistles too. They just look different. For that person that's teaching at school, for that person that's driving a bus, for that person that's a doctor or a nurse, for that person that's doing whatever, everybody's got their own headaches about their job that sometimes makes them want to quit. Do you ever hit one of those moments and back up and say, this just isn't fair? I've heard some of you say that about your farms. I hear others with office jobs say that about their jobs. Talking about somebody they trained getting promoted ahead of them and all that kind of stuff. My father was a machinist, and he created a lot of new processes that made their work better and through the company system, reported those processes to his superiors, and he was supposed to get a bonus. And the engineers he reported that to took his bonus and the credit and got the accolades and the promotions. That's not fair. The world is full of injustice like that, and it's not going to get better tomorrow. And I just want to tell you something. 
You can't swing a stick without hitting somebody that's crying for social justice. We want social justice. We want political justice. We want economic justice. We want fiscal justice. We want budgetary justice. We want criminal justice, and we've created an industry to try to create that. And I'm not trying to say that we as individuals should not try to be just or conduct ourselves in a way that is just, but we need to accept we're not going to create justice in an unjust world because it's broken by sin. We can't fix what we helped break. So go out there and try to create justice. You will fail. I'm going to tell you what, we can't even agree on what is justice. Because with every story of crime and every story of economic disparity and every story of educational disparity and on and on and on, when people get together to talk about those things, people trying to be fair and trying to solve problems can't agree on what is just, much less fix it. Because sin broke the world in a way that created injustice and therefore unfair things happen. Ecclesiastes 7 and 15 acknowledges this. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. This is, there is a just man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. What's he saying? He's saying sometimes people don't get what they deserve during this life. During life under the sun. Ecclesiastes 8 and 14. There is a vanity which occurs on earth. That there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. Now I want to ask you to observe. What you see in Ecclesiastes 8 and 14 is what we see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He labels unfairness in life and problems in life, sin problems in life, etc. He labels those things as vanity. Some translations you'll see that translated futility. Our creation that we enjoy, the things that God has made for us, have been corrupted with vanity by sin's evil hand. And because of that, despite our best efforts, life is unjust. We can do what we can to make a difference in our little circle, and we ought to do that to the best of our ability. But we have to understand, only God can really fix this. So the next time we're having problems, we have to understand, as we're grieving and sorting our way through troubles and maybe... You know, we feel mad at God and we know that we shouldn't, but we're struggling. We have to understand that the, the solution is the exit door out of this sin-broken world. Not trying to fix every injustice because that is beyond our reach and our power. The effect of sin-brokenness also creates insatiability appetites that cannot be satisfied. Romans 8 and 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation was subjected to futility, and observe that's in the same passage uh, context we read earlier that 
laments the brokenness of the world on account of sin. Ecclesiastes 6 and 7, All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. The other day my wife was crying, telling a story about a little boy in her class. Mama rented him out to her boyfriend. If you're old enough to understand that, you understand. If you're too young, then that's fine. How's he going to have any kind of normal existence? How's he going to have a normal frame of mind? That's just not fair. That's just not right. But you know why she did that? Because she has an appetite that cannot be satisfied. As you might guess, it's for substance abuse. And stories like that can just be multiplied ridiculously. How many times that occurs. And it's not always something as obvious as taking dope, as they used to call it. Sometimes it's much less obvious, but just as demanding. There is no appetite rooted in the flesh that can be satisfied. And why are we that way? Because sin broke the world. And when sin broke the world, it brought a brokenness to our hearts. And part of that brokenness is we can't find joy through fleshly appeasement. It won't happen. And people ruin themselves trying. But praise God, there's hope of being redeemed. In 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, he said, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It is the blood of Christ that offers us redemption from this entrapment of sin and the brokenness of creation. And so the God that so many ignorantly protest falsely accusing him of making a broken world, that same God, though he didn't break it, offers to create an exit door through the blood and sacrifice of his own son. He sent his son to this creation to live inside this physical realm, to be hated, rejected, and physically and emotionally abused. So when he went through that grave, he could kick the door open on the way out, creating an exit for us all to escape the brokenness of this world. That is redemption. Titus 2 and 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Christ has made it possible for us to become a beacon of light in a sin-broken world to show what a better world can be like, to show what the world would have been without sin. Just a faint glimpse of it. And in all our frailties as we struggle against the flesh, when we band together in love and we serve the Lord in love, we become a brighter and brighter picture of what He intended things to be all along and what He's enabling things to become again. There's some kind of redemption that will go on with creation. I turn your attention again to Romans 8, verse 20 through 23. 
He said the creation was subjected to futility. Remember that vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes? The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected the same in, uh, in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We crave to have our bodies delivered from this. Where we'll no longer experience that insatiable craving for things of the flesh, the cravings of sin. We'll no longer have that. We'll no longer experience the brokenness of sickness and death. We'll no longer experience the frustrating injustices. That's all going to be fixed. That's all going to be redeemed by the love of God through Jesus Christ, His Son and our Savior. There's some kind of fix that's going to happen with creation, and I'm pretty sure I don't understand exactly how it's going to work. I just know in this passage, he said he's going to deliver it and redeem it. There's another passage that gives us insights into what that will involve. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 13. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in, all, uh, in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This redemption of creation in some way involves the destruction, the utter destruction of the old and it being replaced with something that here is labeled as the new heaven and the new earth. And the scriptures don't tell us a lot of particulars about that. It just gives us general ideas fixed to the promise that, all right, children, you broke it. I'm going to fix it. But until I do, you just have to learn to serve follow me. That's the Lord's directive. Romans 6 and verse 16 says, Do you not know that to whom ye present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Our study opened with consideration of a passage that says, Sinful things destroy, but godly things bring life. And this passage takes that thought up and asks you, which side are you on? You can be like the atheist and say, well, I'm on the side of the guy that destroyed it. I'm on the side of the termites. I don't think there even was a builder. You're free to make that choice. Or you can choose the one thing that gives us hope of relief from all that we suffer and all that we protest when real justice will come in the second coming of Jesus Christ and the redemption of this sin-broken world. What choice will you make? Who are you serving? The perfect builder or the sin-consumed destroyer?
If you've not made that choice to follow Jesus today, I want to set before your mind the invitation to do so right now and obey the gospel. We would like to assist you in that. Or if you're a Christian and you're struggling in your battle against the corruptions of sin, we offer you the prayers of the church to assist you in that. If we can help you in either way, please come. Have a seat on the front while we stand.